You are tuned in to the Oil Field 360 podcast, sponsored by World Oil and powered by Galtway Marketing. Welcome, Jamie Stewart. Welcome, Dave DeRode, to the Oil Field 360 podcast. This is our weekly series on all things oil and gas, hence the 360 degrees. We talk about leadership. We talk about M&A. We talk about everything you can think of. And today, we're going to talk with uh, Jamie Stewart, president of Enquest Energy Solutions. Thank you for being here, Jamie. Thank you for having me. Have you ever done a podcast before? Never done a podcast before. Okay. You're going to love it. Cool way to tell a story. People are going to be listening to this all over the globe. you'll, You'll find it. Very interesting how the, the reaches of this podcast. Dave DeRode, our co-host today. How are you doing, David? Doing wonderful. Yes. Glad to be here. Glad to see my buddy Jamie here. Appreciate you coming by. Thank you for having me. So wanted to kick this off and kind of give a little bit of background about yourself and kind of where you came from and how you started and you know who you are and this sort of thing. And then have a much more meaningful discussion around getting some of your thoughts about the industry and what you're seeing in your own business and tell us a little bit about Inquest as well. So sounds good. So talk to us about your beginnings in the in the oil field and, and how you got it all started. It's a good story. I, my family's been in the business for over a hundred years. My great great grandfather started Stewart and Stevenson back in nineteen oh two. He was a blacksmith and he hired Joe R. Stevenson to become his woodworker, carriage maker. And together they formed Stewart and Stevenson, downtown Houston, Texas, when Houston was starting its first boom. I've been been through seemingly many since then. The company was part of our family for over a hundred years, and it was a dream of mine growing up to go and work in the family business. I immediately went to work in the oil field equipment manufacturing business. It was called Petroleum Equipment Division of Stewart and Stevenson back in about 1997. I started out working in the warehouse because uh, my boss told me I didn't know jack shit about anything, so I needed to learn it from the ground up. He was he was right at the time, I have to admit. Uh, I was a finance major, marketing major from SMU, not really an oil field born and bred guy. I kind of had to grow into the oil field thing, but started in the warehouse. Then they moved me into manufacturing and I started building the equipment. Uh, they moved me into welding and that lasted for about a whole day because <laughs> the guys thought it was a funny thing to not tell me to wear long sleeves. And if you don't wear long sleeves while you're welding, you're going to get a sunburn and a pretty bad sunburn. So they let me go through that experience and then told me to go back to assembly. So I went back to assembly, built the equipment for six or eight weeks. And then they uh, pulled me into testing so I could test the equipment into engineering so I could help the engineering department design and redline the equipment. I wasn't the best engineer either. And then ultimately got pulled into uh, inside sales. And then we had an interesting bit there where the whole sales team that we were doing the quotes for, building the cost sheets for, they all abandoned ship on seemingly the same day. All followed our general manager out the door. And myself and another guy, Chad Jost, great friend of mine still today, we were the only two left. And we were also the most wet behind the ears with no experience at Stuart Stevenson. It was an awesome run. The, the, the company was fantastic. And I wanted to lead it one day. Uh, but life has different ideas for me. And, and that's what brings me to where I am today. Sure. So talk to us about your foray into starting your own business, Surefire. 
obviously that that kind of gave you that experience and, and has carried you on into to inquest now but before we do that i actually i, I want to stay on that point just because okay. it's it's a subject that's a little dear to my heart when you say <clears throat> you wanted to lead that and you didn't and i because i've made some notes so you were there 14 years yourself obviously the family business was the family business for a long time yeah. how difficult was that to i'm sure your sights were set on that your entire childhood college early career and then at late 30s early you know whenever that was gone so it was extremely emotional i'd be lying to you if i said tears didn't come to my eyes when i told my boss and my boss's boss the the ceo at the time that i was leaving stewart and stevenson cuz i had in my mind that one day I wanted to lead it. I told the CEO of the company several years before I decided to leave that I wanted to lead the company one day. But the company was purchased. It was not part of my family. No steward or Stevenson other than myself was still involved in the company mm. when I left. And so it had been taken in a different direction. And it was somebody else's company at that point in time. Still had my name on it, still had my family's name on it. And I was still very proud to, to see that and to represent it. And so even though it wasn't part of my family anymore, it was a very emotional decision to, right. to leave. I, I can imagine. So I, I didn't mean to. No, no, no. I think, that's, I think it's a good point to add a little bit more foundation mm-hmm. to kind of, kind of what you did next and so can you talk to us a little bit about that, you and your brother Rob, and kind of how how all this stuff kind of came about? We were coming out of the financial crisis. You know, it was a major downturn, not just for the oil and gas industry, but it was a, a major downturn for industry in general and the world in general. I mean, the whole world was affected by the financial crisis. But we could see some uh, sunlight starting to peak out, and I'd made my decision to leave, and I announced that I was leaving, and I had opportunities to start coming my way. Didn't really know what I was going to do when I left. I knew I wanted to go to work with my dad and my brother. I could tell they were having more fun than I was at that point in time, even though they'd been through some really tough times with the the crisis also. I was going to go work with Supreme Electrical Service, which was the company at the time, my brother and my dad had. I was going to build a business rebuilding equipment out of Supreme Electrical Service. We would form a new company. And just as we kind of came to the idea that that's what what I was going to start, the fracturing industry was uh, starting to come back and people were starting to get The order books were filling up, the lead times were getting longer, and there was a lot of growth in the industry, a lot of new companies uh, forming for the first time in many, many years in the frac industry to go take over the the frac services and perform fracturing services. This is about the time that I really heard your name for the first time and with our friend Hector. And I mean, that world was booming in that time. I mean, it was all new to, to everyone, really. Yeah. It was booming, to say the least. To, to to have the opportunity to create a Surefire Industries USA was just a function of how crazy it was at the time. I was talking to a company called Bayou Well Service about doing different things for them, uh, maybe even being a buyer's representative and helping them find the best equipment and making sure that they made the best decisions in terms of purchasing. And as I'm sitting there and doing that, a gentleman from Canada came to me and, and asked me if I wanted to start his business in the U.S. I actually politely turned him down and said that uh, I wanted to work with my dad and my brother. And, and that was the focus. 
but let's keep the discussion going. And as I got to thinking about the opportunity that Bayou Well Service had and how, how I could participate in the Bayou Well Service opportunity, started to come together that maybe we could build a manufacturing company, but I needed engineering resources and I needed purchasing resources or else I wouldn't be able to commit to $20 million worth of material to help supply the equipment. I wouldn't be able to find a building. I wouldn't be able to uh, hire people. Uh, we wouldn't be able to make drawings uh, that we needed to deliver. So went back to this gentleman that I'd met uh, that I knew from Canada and said, hey, you have engineering resources. You have purchasing resources. I have an opportunity here and I think we can capitalize, but we're going to have to work together. And so how Surefire was born, it was actually born at Pizzatola's Barbecue. Uh, it's a great place. Yeah, it's yeah. a good spot. Uh, Jerry <laughs> so, does a good job over there. That was uh, the, the birth of Surefire. I was actually sitting in the president's uh, Bayou Well Service office going over my proposal when his preferred supplier, I'll name names, it was United Engines, called him and said that they'd sold his delivery slots out from under him. Bayou hadn't put the money down yet, and so they went ahead and sold it to somebody who had put their money down. And I was sitting right across from the president of Bayou Well Service, and he looked at me and he said, Jamie, are you fucking serious about doing this? And I said, you bet your ass I'm serious <laughs> about doing this. And he said, well, your proposal only has one fleet, but uh, we're going to need two. And so Surefire was born. Wow. So talk about that ramp up. It was pretty incredible. I got to be part of that, and uh, it was pretty pretty awesome to watch. Obviously, I think we learned a lot of, along the way. And we'll ask you a little bit about that, but I think it's a pretty interesting story. Pretty pretty amazing ramp up. Got you nominated Ernst Young Entrepreneur of the Year. I mean, it was, it was exciting times. It was extremely exciting. It was one of those, the less you knew, the better, because if you knew everything that was going to happen to you, you never would have done it. You'd have been too scared, <laughs> too afraid, too worried. You'd have just worried yourself to death and nothing ever would have gotten done. So we didn't have a building yet, so we had to solve the building problem. We had an order for $62 million worth of equipment, oh, no man. building. I had no people. Then I had to convince people that we were going to sign a lease on a building and that we would uh, ultimately get the deposits that were associated with the, uh, the order that we took. So that was a hard deal. We wound up asking the landlord if we could squat in the building until we could get the lease signed. It was not a very good negotiating position, but I didn't know what else to do. We didn't have anywhere else to go. I couldn't go to Pizzatola's barbecue and post, uh, and post up in the parking lot or post up in the, the dining room there and, and try to put a business together. So we had our benefits meeting at Jason's Deli. We had some meetings at Starbucks, but we needed a place to go. And so we talked to the landlord of the place we were negotiating for a lease he agreed to let us squat in the offices uh, in good faith that we were going to negotiate a lease with them. And, and ultimately, we got that done. Customer was pretty concerned uh, about the period of time that it took us to negotiate, finally negotiate the lease, but we got it done. It was fast and furious. They gave us six months to deliver about 60 pieces of individual equipment that we had to design from the ground up. And it, it was crazy. We were 
officing in conference room and we had cables and stuff running into the the conference room we had no reception area people just walk in the building and then start asking you know yelling around the office to try to find where we were and then we would uh, they'd eventually find us in there and then we renovated around ourselves and eventually we moved out but i would say that the most uh, rewarding part of that that early stage was sitting around a conference table and running a business. It's a whole lot easier to run a business where you're all all sitting in the same room and you can talk to each other. Well, you know, you couldn't have been more than 33, 34 years old. I mean, was that's a young age to be running such an enterprise to, to put it all together. What, what did you feel? You kind of mentioned that, you know, if they would have told you what was going on, you may not have done it, but did you feel expectations with, you know, I don't want to, go back to this, but with a Stuart last name, I mean, were there, were there hardcore expectations on you, both internal and external? There were huge expectations. I was uh, extremely nervous and worried and anxious. I didn't sleep a whole lot in the early days of Surefire because I knew that Bayou Well Service and their ultimate customer in Canna, they were counting on me. And, you know, they were counting on my team, but ultimately they placed the order with me. And so they were counting on me. So it was... It was a really tough time. I was not uh, brought up as a a COO or CEO. It was something I was getting used to. My confidence wasn't even there yet. You know, I wasn't sure that I could lead people, particularly people who were uh, decades older than me with decades more experience. So that confidence I, I had to gain. And, you know, you would have highs and you would have lows and you have everything in between. Well, at the height, I mean, you were leading 300 plus people. I mean, that was pretty, pretty incredible. It was incredible. And and we were getting, getting advice along the way from several entities that we trusted, people we trusted. I would say, you know, some of the advice was good. Some of the advice was not so good, but not having the experiences where I couldn't really figure out what was the good advice and what was just noise that I should have ignored. So there were, there were several things that came up that I wish I would have done differently. This question is exactly what you just said. And I had kind of written it earlier. I was preparing. What lessons would you tell 2010 Jamie that 2019 Jamie knows? Yeah. Or learned. First of all, you know, if there's, Smoke, generally there's a fire. Um, (laughs) And and if you hear things more than one time, you definitely need to explore that in in a lot more depth. One example is when we went out and got advice on how to start the company and what we needed first, the general consensus was we needed a, a controller in the accounting department. We didn't need a CFO yet because we, we didn't know what was beyond Bayou. Even though Bayou was a very large contract to start off with, we didn't know what would, what would come afterward. And what came afterward was Bayou times, you know, five mm-hmm. probably. So we, we, not only did we take that really big contract, we took several big contracts after that. And so we quickly went from a QuickBooks accounting system to uh, an ERP-based accounting system with Microsoft Dynamics Great Plains and all of the complexity of, of trying to connect all those dots from the first seven months of operation without an ERP system to the next several months with an ERP system. It would have overwhelmed a, a seasoned CFO, but it really overwhelmed our our controller, I wasn't experienced enough to recognize when he became overwhelmed to the point where our books were just a total mess. Mm. So if there's anything that I could tell 
2010 Jamie, it would be to hire that seasoned stud accounting finance professional at the beginning because you're not starting out to be a, a small business. I didn't start Inquest with our current owners to be a small business. You're starting out to be a, a large organization. You need to set yourself up for that growth in the beginning. Right. That's great advice. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, one of the people that I follow is a guy named Grant Cardone. And it's a, he talks about a 10-time rule. And, you know, where do you see yourself in 10 years plan for that versus today? So that's that's great advice. David, do you have anything you wanted to follow up on that? No, I think that was a question we talked about that would be interesting mm-hmm. to ask Jamie. Obviously, we've seen the good and the bad and the ugly like everybody in the oil field has. I think history does a way of repeating itself. I think one question we wanted to ask you is where do you see the capital equipment market today and for the foreseeable future compared to what we saw back then in the surefire days? There's really no comparison today versus 2010. In 2010, I believe going into 10, there was roughly 7 million, maybe close to 9 million, depending on who you talk to, installed horsepower in the industry. And in in the 11, 12 time frame, we probably doubled the uh, amount of horsepower that was out there. Today, we're sitting around 20, somewhere between 20 and 25, depending on, again, who you talk to. But we are still oversupplied in the uh, capital equipment industry. It's it's more of a replacement business than it is a uh, growth business at this point. And that's what we're benefiting from in, in 2019 versus the 2010, 2011, 2012 timeframe where we're benefiting from this huge growth industry and growth due to shale and, and all of sure. the, the, the horsepower needs that shale requires. But what about the use of the equipment? Obviously, it's it, the intensity has increased quite a bit. 24-hour cycle times, we see a lot of equipment failure as a result of you know, deferred maintenance, CapEx, and, and just improper use, among other things. I mean, is that what you, when you, when you talk about kind of redressing, rebuilding equipment, what are, what are the things that you're mainly addressing with these units that are coming in? Are you completely tearing them down and rebuilding them? Are there any particular pieces that are more prevalent to replacement and failure that you're seeing? Or- so, I'll, so I'll start with the, the first part of your question. First part of the question is, what do we see different in the application? How is it affecting the equipment? The application of fracturing today versus 2010 is night and day. You mentioned 24-hour operations. Uh, you've got 16 to 18-hour pump times in a, in a 24-hour day. When I first started at Stewart & Stevenson, you know, my, my boss who told me I didn't know shit, about the equipment made me read the SPM manual. SPMs, the pump manufacturer. Right. For those that don't know the SPM name, well, I read the the book and it said SPM defined their pump as an intermittent duty pump. It was rated for three to four hours of pumping time a day and three to four days per week, and that was how they rated the pump. Well, the pump in in many cases looks very very similar today as it did back in 1997 when I began, and I was asked to read that that manual from SPM and we're running 16 to 18 hours a day and 24 hours a day and 365 days a year maintaining the equipment in the field. So we've far outstripped the the true capacity of those legacy pumps and that has had a dramatic impact on the fleet. So then ask, you know, what are we seeing? What's prevalent in the industry? 
you know, upgrades, conversions, continuous duty rated components, continuous duty, if, if you would uh, compare and contrast that to intermittent duty, that is continuous duty is a true 24 hour a day application, which is what we're, what we're really seeing the equipment uh, subjected to today. So we're seeing a lot of interest around that, that continuous duty, that beefier pump. And so we're taking equipment that was eight, nine, 10 years old, and we are trying to make it useful for today's application. That's what we're seeing a lot of right now. Sure. When you, when you say we, you're, you're speaking industry-wide or specifically Inquest? Because I, I want you to kind of explain what Inquest is. Yeah. So what is when you say we, who are you talking about? So when I say we, I mean Inquest. I mean, we are focused, Inquest is focused on improving the reliability and the total cost of ownership of the equipment that people are using today in the fracturing industry. And not just the fracturing industry. We, we go across just that industry into coil tubing, which is a complementary service nitrogen equipment, cementing equipment. We want to make sure that people are going out there with the best possible tools to do their job so that they can compete. Yeah, I think that's a differentiator from Surefire in, in what you're doing at Inquest. I mean, Surefire, you're basically dedicated to frack and you've got some diversified offerings now through Inquest. Has that, has that helped uh, the business in a lot of ways where you're not just completely tied to frack, but I know when we when we were talking Surefire way back when, with questions we had, you know, are you going to get into production equipment or coil or anything else because of your fabrication capabilities? Right. It is a strategy of ours to to be a total equipment solutions provider and a total repair and maintenance services provider for the entire oil field services spectrum. And where that takes us is all those things that you just mentioned. And it is different from where we were at, at Surefire. And the reason why we did what we did at Surefire is that my partner, the guy who helped me with the engineering and purchasing resources at the beginning, he was building coil tubing equipment in Canada. So we didn't want to cannibalize each other's businesses. Right. So he focused on coil and nitrogen and the support pumping equipment in Canada while we focused on frac down in, in Texas and, and for the uh, lower 48 states. In this case, Canada's uh, a challenging market right now and yeah. probably will be for the foreseeable future. The U.S. market is a much more attractive market today. So the investment dollars are here. The services are here. The production is here. Therefore, we need to be able to provide services across the spectrum and equipment across the spectrum of coil, cement, nitrogen, frac, sure. wireline, all those those disciplines. No, no, when... Back then, we were looking at you know also international markets as well. Have you have you gotten any interest from from any of the international markets? Argentina, Middle East, Australia, some of the some of the places we're seeing. Yes, yeah, so, in some cases. So that's a great question. International is coming back for the first time in many years, probably since prior to the downturn that we experienced in fifteen and sixteen. I spent. Most of my career was Stuart and Stevenson traveling internationally, selling equipment internationally. So we immediately re-engaged, and so so did my partners, the guys who invested in Enquest and started Enquest. They also have an extensive international background. So uh, we've actually already gotten our first PO for equipment, for new equipment, going into Saudi Arabia in support of their business over there. And we expect to have a significant 
international reach with Enquest, uh, similar to what we had at Stewart and Stevenson, similar to what they had in their legacy business, those being my investors at Interflow and Crown and Nowsco. Sure. There's going to be a lot of people that care about that. That's uh, that's a hot topic on everybody's mind right now is Middle East. I mean, we it's going crazy over there, everything that we deal with. So I'm sure you're going to, once this goes live, people are going to be interested in what you guys are doing over there. I want to see if anybody can sell some in-basin sand over there to uh, <laughs> yes. There's lots of it. There is lots of it. But yes, so we are seeing a lot of interest internationally for the first time in many, many years. So when I was at when I was at Surefire, we did not enjoy a robust international market. Stuart and Stevenson always counted on the down years in the US that uh, were good years internationally and vice versa. But we didn't see that when I was at Surefire. So that 10 to call it 16 period international struggled to uh, add equipment and services. We worked really hard to try to establish a presence in Argentina with a local distributor manufacturer down there. But Vaca Muerta was uh, not a uh, reliable play at the time. And so investment was still very spotty. So we never did see international takeoff. But I am seeing a lot of uh, improvement in that area today versus uh, several years ago. That's great. I've become just a technology nerd. I love it. There's just so much out there now that wasn't there. I mean, go back to 2010, you were on a Nokia flip phone. You know, just even our consumer products are different. I had a Palm Trio <laughs> smartphone, by the way. Very nice. That's 2010. Those, yeah, that's the stylus. Those are impressive. Yeah, it you was were, very impressive. Yeah, about, I, had to write, pounds. I had to write a, the green screen. <laughs> a one-page justification to my boss at the time as to why we needed a Palm Trio smartphone so that we could get email on our phone yes. in 2010. I went through the same thing. I, told, I showed my boss and he said, we don't pay for toys. I said, it's not a toy. This is how everyone's going to do business. <laughs> is, there, is there a technology now that you feel comfortable sharing or that you think is really making it easier to do business. I obviously, you know, you want to keep things proprietary for inquest, but I mean, are there, how is technology changing the way you do business now? That's a good question. There are several platforms, software platforms that uh, we are studying and some have implemented that help us run a better business. You know, there are collaboration tools. Ours is a big project-based business so that we have to collaborate internally with all the different disciplines within the company. And it's different than it was just uh, several years ago, five years ago, uh, when we were starting Surefire. One of those that we're using... I'll name names is Microsoft Teams. Teams is a pretty cool platform for collaboration. Not only can we collaborate internally with our internal customers in the company, but we also collaborate externally and keep our customer up to date on where we are, any questions we have, any documentation we need. If you think about having to do all that over email, you have to go search your email or you have to organize your email inbox so that all your emails from X domain go into X folder. And then you've got to sort through that folder if you've got hundreds of emails. And it, it could be a nightmare, but Teams gives you, it gives everybody on the team access to all of the information, all of the record. Even if they came onto the team six months after the project started, they could go and catch up and know every single piece of communication that has taken place on that project. So that, that's a really neat one. But as far as technology goes, one one other thing that I wanted to talk about was 
where the technology is going on fracturing equipment. Good. I wanted you to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, I I would love to tell you about the equipment because there are some really exciting things going on in the industry right now. Electric frack is really a hot topic and something that is near and dear to our heart. EFRAC, you know, we first became exposed to it in about 2010 with Evolution. Evolution is is one of the leaders out there, one of the two guys that are providing electric frack services smart today. people up there very smart people but it was a completely different management team a completely different design and we were exposed to it and it was very early stage at the time but today i would say a new management team and new ways of uh, approaching the equipment design uh, from an electric standpoint i see a real place for electric today whereas it was a very niche business back in 2010 the other area we're seeing a lot of interest in is uh, quieting down the the fracturing application. You've got, uh, particularly in the DJ Basin today up in Colorado near Denver, you've got a lot of uh, oil and gas activity that's abutting neighborhoods and schools and churches and uh, businesses that uh, don't find the noise of uh, drilling and, and fracturing very pleasant. So you've had companies come out and deliver sound attenuated equipment. Uh, we're participating in that as well today. We, we bit that off right off the bat, both EFRAC and uh, sound attenuating noise reduction technology right off the bat. And I feel like that is going to be a really big differentiator for us going forward. Yeah, that's, those are two great points, actually. Yeah. What about equipment diagnostics? And and I know we're seeing a lot of service companies that are looking to get more data out of their equipment because the operators are also looking for data out of the equipment, you know, all sorts of monitoring around oil pressure and fuel consumption and, yeah, you know, the effectiveness and everything, pump pressure, et cetera. Yeah, so there is and has been for several years now a huge push to uh, learn more about the equipment so that they can be more proactive about their maintenance rather than reactive. Uh, the industry is, is still very reactive, even with the data that they have today. But you, you're seeing uh, a trend towards the data not just being available on site. You're seeing the data get broadcast to the cloud and then the cloud allowing executives and maintenance professionals and management to really get a better understanding of how that equipment's being used, how it's being maintained and and what needs to be beefed up in the future. And uh, the more that occurs, the the fewer failures we're going to have on location and the more information people are going to have to make better decisions in the future. So that's a really big uh, piece of the puzzle to help the the equipment guys, the the service companies gain control over this equipment again and make sure we don't have unplanned failures in the field. Sure. What about fire suppression? I think one of the biggest issues which I struggle with is because it's somewhat of a reactive measure as opposed to trying to get as much information out of equipment to be proactive as opposed to reactive. But uh, are you seeing Many customers request fire suppression or are y'all looking at putting fire suppression on any of your packages of equipment? 
we're seeing a, a lot of that. Uh, I think uh, last year, may even have been you that told me this. There were some maybe five or six different frac fleet fires last year, resulting in over $120 million in losses. That has really uh, put fire suppression at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. In Quest today, we are actually a distributor for the Apex fire suppression system in Canada, and we have uh, retrofitted a fleet here in uh, the U.S with an Aphex fire suppression system, and we're bidding on more fleets to do the installation of the Aphex system down here. So it is at the top of people's minds. I think a lot of it has to do with the insurance companies coming back and wanting to rethink the amount they're charging for insurance rates uh, to insure these frack fleets um, because fires are more common than people know. Most of them get put out before they become a, a big issue, but some don't, and they result in huge losses. They result in local news helicopters flying over the scene and taking ugly video. And then when that video hits the web, it goes viral and sure. the companies take a big hit when that The industry that takes a hit. The and industry that's, takes a big that's hit. That's actually one of the things, the, the points of this podcast over time is going to be to educate our audience and then really not even our target audience, just people that happen to hear this on how much work, how much safety, how much focus goes into keeping people safe, keeping the environment safe. And I don't think we do a very good job as an industry telling our story that that we do care about these things yeah. as much as anybody. So Yeah. So the cause of these fires are are generally very consistent and well-known. I mean, it usually deals with a hose of some kind with a flammable fluid in it, breaking or bursting or coming loose and spraying flammable fluid on hot surfaces. And that's usually around an engine. So if you can direct fire suppression to those areas and you have a means to activate that fire suppression equipment, you can stop fires before they become big fires. And when they're, they only cost you hundreds, if not thousands of dollars versus millions of dollars. So the technology is there. I think people should invest. We should make these catastrophic fires a thing of the past. This is Jamie. I knew this was going to be an interesting podcast. I knew that we would kind of float through our time allotted with you today. But before we go, I want a couple things that we ask all of our guests. Is there a pearl of wisdom? Is there something that is very impactful to you that you either A, base your life on, your business, however it is that you, a function of how you move forward, you either pass on to new employees, young employees, or, or just mentoring people. Is there something that you'd like to pass on to the audience? It's a, it's a key pearl of wisdom for you. Key pearl. Of, I've got many pearls of wisdom that I've learned over the days. <laughs> so we can't talk to, about yeah. to dis- <laughs> distill it down to one pearl of wisdom. You know, yeah. I, I would say that one thing that's always been beaten to me is, is, uh, people are your greatest asset. And that that sounds very cliche, but it is so true. Your company is only as good as the team you build. And uh, I feel like I have been fortunate to uh, have a group of people that I've worked with for several iterations and having those people next to me and knowing that uh, we're going to go to battle together gives me a lot of confidence in the fact that we're going to be able to pull off the things that we set out to pull off. That's great. It is a people game. It is. Yeah. Dave, do you have anything that you want to no, end with? I think that's I think that's good. I was, yeah. I was gonna talk about one of the things that we've done historically, kind of kind of thinking about, you know, times past and the cycle of the of the uh, industry when Jamie got us involved in uh barbecue. We were team frack you and 
Jamie and and uh, I both had a common customer who who didn't pay us, and uh, we had to have a uh, a booth for our barbecue, and we were we were going to be judged on uh, on our booth and everything else. And one one evening, late in the evening, in our planning for this uh, barbecue that that Jamie uh, had put together, the team Fracu said. You know, we're Team Fracky. I mean, we've got some idle equipment around here. <laughs> it was back when Blancos was in uh, was in full swing. We drug that frack pump out the Blancos and would fire that thing up for the kids. You remember that? I do remember that. Yeah. That was, uh, you know, if if the the guy's not paying for it and he's not taking it, you might well might as well put it to good yeah, use. Make sure it works. <laughs> it was it was almost more like a carnival ride yeah. than it was. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, than it was a uh, fracturing unit. But that got a, a, a great audience, brought a lot more people to Blancos. I miss Blancos. That's a great place. Than they probably expected. It also causes them to change their rules a little bit around. <laughs> <laughs> what we could do, what we couldn't do around our. Oh, man. That's they, good. We've always pushed the limits yeah, of we, uh, yeah. the what's allowed and what's not allowed as it relates to the stock grill challenge. That's right. That's right. Well, listen, everybody that's going to listen to this, everybody in this room is going to root you on we your your iteration of Enquest Energy Solutions based in Houston here. You've got some uh, your partners up in Canada. You've got a good team. I've met a lot of those guys. We wish you the best of luck. Thank you for coming on today and uh, giving us some of your time. Thank you for having me. All right. That was Oilfield 360 with co-host Josh Lowry and Dave DeRode with our uh, guest, Jamie Stewart with Enquest. Uh, what's your uh, website? We'll give you a plug here www.enquestenergysolutions.com.com. All right. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks, Jamie. All right. Thank you. Thank you.